respond with gratitude. In Christ's name we pray, amen. So if you've been coming here for a while, you know that we've been paying attention to the church calendar as a way of living into the story of the life of Christ. Most of the action seems to happen between November and April, right? You have Advent, Christmas, you have Lent and Easter, and then we have what we call ordinary time for most of the season in between. There's a little more complexity to that, but there's one more piece in this sequence that historically the church has observed as a major holy day in the life of the church. It's called the Festival of Epiphany. We talked a little bit about that already. But between the 4th century, starting around the 4th century, and lasting until the mid-18th century, Epiphany was considered a feast more important than Christmas Day. The day of Epiphany officially falls on January 6th, which follows the 12 days of Christmas. And it begins the season of Epiphany, or what's called Epiphany Tide. And that lasts until Ash Wednesday, depending on who you ask. Um, and Ash Wednesday, of course, begins Lent. So the season serves as a bridge between Christmas and Lent. All right, Christmas, the birth of Christ, and Lent, the passion of Christ. Now, epiphany comes from the Greek word epiphania, uh, epiphania meaning manifestation or appearance. And in the context of the church year, Epiphany refers to the manifestation of Jesus as the Savior of the world. So in Advent, the church awaits the coming of the Messiah. And at Christmas, the church beholds the incarnation of the Messiah. And during Epiphany tide, Epiphany season, the church celebrates that God has come in the flesh to be the savior of the world, that he is revealing his glory in the world. Moreover, the movement from Advent to Epiphany marks this progression from darkness to light, which is why Epiphany is sometimes called the Festival of Lights or the Feast of Lights. Advent anticipates God's promise that light will come to dispel the darkness. And Christmas praises God for the light that's been born into the darkness. Well, Epiphany rejoices that the light has come into the world and is making itself known to the world. It's the revelation of the glory of Jesus. And so with Isaiah on Epiphany, the church proclaims, Arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. That's Isaiah 60 that we read this morning in our call. So that's what we're doing in our preaching in this series through Season of Epiphany. We're focusing on God's revelation of his glory in the Messiah and how his light breaks into the darkness and makes itself manifest or reveals the glory. Now, the theme of darkness and light is universally relatable and relevant. Everyone gets it. Who has not had the experience of being disoriented in the dark, or afraid, or even terrified in darkness at some time? 
And this rich biblical imagery of darkness and light begins on the very first page of the Bible, Genesis 1. And it runs all the way through to the last page, Revelation 22. And it sets the stage for our passage today. Isaiah chapter 8, verses 19 through 22. This leads us into our passage for today, but I want you to read and hear this. When someone tells you to consult mediums and spiritists who whisper and mutter, should not a people rather inquire of their God? Why consult the dead on behalf of the living? Consult God's instruction and the testimony of warnings. If anyone does not speak according to this word, they have no light of dawn. Distressed and hungry, they will roam through the land. When they are famished, they will become enraged, and looking upward will curse their king and their God. Then they will look toward the earth and see only distress and darkness and fearful gloom, and they will be thrust into utter darkness. So that last part of Isaiah chapter 8 describes the fate of the faithless in Israel. Those who ignore and despise the word of God, who in the time of crisis turn to the spirits of the dead for guidance or something else, to their idols. They will wander in distress and darkness and fearful gloom, and their suffering will be bitter whether in exile in Assyria or in Babylon or after that, even in the occupied Holy Land. And that's the context into which Isaiah inserts this promise of the glorious hope for the future. So I want you to read this or hear this and try to understand how Isaiah's readers would have understood this message in their time. Isaiah chapter 9, verses 1 through 7. Nevertheless, there will be no more gloom for those who were in distress. In the past, he humbled the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the future, he will honor Galilee of the nations by way of the sea beyond the Jordan. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. You have multiplied the nation and increased their joy. They rejoice before you as people rejoice at the harvest, as warriors rejoice when dividing the plunder. For as in the day of Midian's defeat, you have shattered the yoke that burdens them, the bar across their shoulders, the rod of their oppressor, for every warrior's boot used in battle and every garment rolled in blood will be destined for burning, will be fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the greatness of his government and peace there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. 
The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. The word of the Lord. This short passage can be kind of neatly divided into two parts based on the function, I think. Verses 1 through 3 compromise the proclamation of the future joy. And verses 4 through 7 make up the explanation for that joy. So you have the proclamation and the explanation. The transition to this proclamation of future joy begins in verse 1 with this phrase, nevertheless, there will be no more gloom for those who were in distress. And before we, we kind of look at that future joy, I want to take a short detour into this talk of Zebulun and Naphtali and the Galilee of the Gentiles. These are all in the northernmost segment of Israel. They're the least important of the tribes. They're the furthest from Jerusalem. They're the first areas to fall to the invading Assyrians in 700s BC. They're the first to go into exile and to be resettled in other portions of the Assyrian Empire. And Zebulun and Naphtali and Galilee were resettled with foreigners by the Assyrians. However, in this unpredictable and mysterious wisdom of God, these lands, these least important of the tribes, will have the place of honor as the first to see the dawning of the new light of the Messiah. I find it a beautiful example of the prophetic power of the scriptures that this would be fulfilled so incredibly 700 years later with the coming of Jesus and the initiation, the inauguration of his ministry in Galilee. Okay? For that very reason, Matthew quotes this passage in chapter 4 at the beginning of Jesus' ministry. When he starts in Capernaum and he makes his ministry centered in this area of Galilee. All right, let's return to the text. We're going to go to verse 2. Isaiah promises that the people walking in darkness will see a great light, and on those living in the shadow of death, a new light will dawn. Well, that wasn't exactly right, was it? In fact, Isaiah meant what I said. They will see a great light, and on them a new light will dawn. But he says it using a Hebrew literary convention that expresses such certainty about the coming of this promise, the coming of this light, that he uses the past tense. It's as if the event is so sure to happen that it's already happened. And he can say, even looking 700 years into the future, this has already happened. Now, he doesn't know how long it's going to be when he writes and records this. But he has the eyes of faith that enable him to place the coming of the light immediately adjacent to the description of the darkness in chapter 8. Not because it happens immediately afterwards, but because the faithful believers walking in darkness can already see that light and are sustained by that hope. And what does the light represent? <coughs> it 
don't think I did that right. <laughs> what does the light represent? It represents the glory and goodness that God's deliverance will bring. In this passage, as we'll see, it refers to all the future blessings of the coming of the Messiah and his rule. And Isaiah summarizes that in verse 3. He says, You have enlarged the nation, multiplied the nation, and increased their joy. And he uses these images of harvest and of military triumph, both of which are divine gifts, to show the depth and breadth of the joy that will accompany God's deliverance. So the proclamation of these first three verses is this. Those walking in darkness will find joy in the coming of this great light from God. They will find joy. Now that's a great promise to a people living in exile or a nation under occupation by foreign forces. It's something to hold on to in the darkness. But it begs for some additional explanation. How will this future joy come to us? And I think we can look at verses 4 to 7 for that explanation. Each of the next three verses begins with the Hebrew word ki, K-I, which means for. And it's as if Isaiah is saying, here are the reasons. Now, the NIV left it out in verse 5, but all the other translations have it, and it's there in the Hebrew. So the point is that Isaiah is giving these three reasons sequentially for the future joy of his people. One, they will be rescued from slavery and oppression. Okay? Two, they will rest from conflict and warfare. And three, they will enjoy the reign of the anointed one, the divine king who rules with justice and righteousness and brings his shalom or peace. In verse 4, we have the references to the yoke and the burdens and the oppressors that recall the captivity that Israel suffered in Egypt. But it also clearly applies to the Babylonian captivity and the Assyrian exile. Yet God will rescue them, he says, as in the day of Gideon, when only 300 men routed the hordes of the Midianites by the miraculous help of God. They will have that joy in rescue from their suffering and their slavery and their oppression. In verse 5, we have the description of the end of warfare, recalling the prophecy of the last days in Isaiah chapter 2, where he says they will beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not take up sword against nation, nor will they train for war anymore. Again, this comes about only by the work of God. Only by the work of the Lord, as in verse 4, the victory will be enjoyed by God's people, but not earned by them. Burning the implements of war signifies the permanent end of all conflict, the permanent end of all warfare. 
an entry into this joyous rest for war-weary souls. Verse 6 famously proclaims this revelation of the Anointed One, the Messiah. Here's the third explanation for the future joy of the people of God and clearly the fundamental reason for the hope. This child is destined to rule over Israel, reigning on David's throne. And because the government will fall on his shoulders, the yoke of oppression will be removed from the shoulders of his people. The four names he has given reflect both his character and his calling. Wonderful Counselor uses the Hebrew word pele, which describes amazing things that only God can do. And so to link wonderful with counselor means that the king will rule with divine wisdom that comes only from God. Mighty God refers to his person and his power. It unequivocally ascribes a divine nature to this king. The same title, Mighty God, is used to describe the Lord only a chapter later, Isaiah 10, 21. Same word. Everlasting Father reflects the permanency of his rule and speaks of the care and discipline and the love for his people, the care of a father. And lastly, the Messiah will be the Prince of Peace or the Prince of Shalom. In Hebrew, Shalom, as we have said many times before, means much more than simply the absence of conflict or the absence of warfare. Instead, it indicates flourishing and prosperity and harmony and fulfillment and peace with God. It means to be whole or complete. So the Prince of Peace is himself complete and whole and fulfilled and flourishing as a person. He is full of joy. He is at one with God and with his people. And then he administers the benefits of that kind of shalom to those who enjoy his reign. Moreover, in verses 6 and 7, Isaiah emphasizes this permanence of the Messiah's rule, of the just and the righteous reign. There will be no end from that time on and forever. So to put it all together, you have this future, permanent, righteous reign of the anointed one. The divine and human king that provides rescue from slavery and oppression and rest from conflict and warfare and results in deep and lasting joy and peace for the community of God's people. That's a beautiful picture. And that's good news for a Judahite 30 years into captivity in Babylon, right? Reading these words in the scroll of Isaiah. Or imagine you're a second temple Jew. You've returned from Babylon, but you're still suffering under the Persians or the Greeks or the Roman rule. And what kind of glorious hope for the future are you imagining when you read these words in the scroll? What does the Messiah's reign look like? One thing's clear, and that's that there's a glorious future for the people of God. 
And maybe that's the best we can do with a prophecy like this, right? We don't know the details of how this gets worked out, but even though we suffer today, in the future, things will be better. Glorious even. And everything will be set right. Since we often read this passage in the season of Advent, we usually focus on that sort of hope. We focus in some ways on the hope that we have for the second coming of the Messiah, when things will be made right, when all these promises will find their ultimate fulfillment. And in that way, we kind of take the perspective of the remnant living in Israel before the time of Jesus, right? We walk in darkness, but the light is coming. And honestly, we in the church often feel like the remnant in Israel, don't we? We feel like we're outnumbered, we're ignored, sometimes even persecuted. Many parts of the world, the church is persecuted. And we're clinging to this future hope of a great light that will shine into the darkness. But I think the idea of epiphany asks us to reframe our thinking about that. How might this view of these our view of the promise change if we embrace that message, that we have already seen the revelation of the coming of the Messiah. We've seen the revelation of the glory of the Messiah. We live on the post-resurrection side of history. What else can we take from this proclamation of future joy when we take that perspective? I've got a few questions that I think will help us answer that. One, have the people walking in darkness seen a great light already? Yes. You bet they have. And through the Spirit and the Scriptures, so have we. The true light that gives light to everyone came into the world. Ian read that from John chapter 1 this morning. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Two, has the Lord multiplied the nation? Surely the answer is yes to that also. If you see the true church, it's composed of Abraham's spiritual descendants. As Paul describes in Galatians 3.29, when he says, if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. Now, it's true. He has multiplied the nation, yet perhaps the Lord is not finished. It remains to be seen what he will do with the Jewish people, the Jewish nation, and with his revelation to all other peoples and nations. So we have an already and a not yet. Three, has the Lord increased our joy? Answer, Yes. In John 17, Jesus explicitly, explicitly prays that they may have the full measure of my joy within them. The coming of the Messiah for salvation is the single greatest joy in the life of every Christian. And yet, it's not yet fully fulfilled, is it? We who follow Jesus still deal with the consequences of sin, 
in our lives and in the earth and with the realities of pain and sorrow and failure and loss. Has the Lord rescued us from slavery and oppression? Yes, of course. Colossians 1.13 begins, for he rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the son he loves in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. But also not yet. Christians continue to suffer from racial and ethnic oppression, suffer from human trafficking, other forms of slavery and oppression as well that persist in human affairs. And to be clear, even we who are rescued from the dominion of darkness are not yet fully cured from the grip of sin in our lives, in our flesh. Though we are emphatically free from the penalty of that sin through the death and resurrection of Christ. Praise God. Five, has the Lord granted us rest from conflict and warfare? Yes. Romans 5.1 says, we who by nature are rebels against God have now been justified through faith. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And also not quite yet. Christians, like all humans, do not have rest from all conflict and war as the daily news easily proves. And six, has the Lord placed the anointed one on the throne of David to reign with justice and righteousness forever? Yes, of course. His kingdom was established by his life and ministry and death and resurrection and his ascension and he reigns in heaven forever. And also not yet. Because his reign on earth remains limited for now. There is unrighteousness and injustice in human affairs and in human government. <coughs> My point is this. We do not stand in the same place as the 6th century Jew, 6th century BC Jew exiled in Babylon, clinging to this sliver of hope despite deep darkness in the events of our history. Instead, we stand on the rock of the Messiah who has already come as the light in the darkness. God is even now enlarging his kingdom and increasing our joy by rescuing people from slavery, by granting them rest from conflict and warfare, and by giving them and us joy in the reign of Jesus Christ, our King. We have seen already how God fulfilled his promise in the most unexpected way, by delivering up his own son as a sacrifice for sin once for all. During Lent, we're going to see the Messiah as the suffering servant. But during this time of Epiphany, we want to see him as the king who begins to reign. Wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, 
Prince of Peace. We know this King who loved us and laid down his life for us. How much greater is our hope standing on this side of the resurrection looking back at the faithfulness of God. When you hear Isaiah's promises of future grace, future joy, and future hope, I want you to remember that we who are alive in Christ already enjoy much of that grace and joy and hope that Isaiah and his, content, and his contemporaries could never imagine. Now, some of us are prone to seeing the glass half full. And we, we can do that in looking at how much of the promised joy and rescue and rest and rain we enjoy. And others of us are more likely to see the glass half empty. Right? There remains much suffering and darkness and oppression and conflict and sin. Wisdom is in keeping both of these truths together intention and trusting that god will properly bring about all that he has promised as the prophet said the zeal of the lord almighty will accomplish this will you pray with me oh lord that is our hope that you will accomplish this this for the glory of your own name. The zeal of the Lord is our hope because you do these things for your name's sake and for your glory. We know that they will come true. And all God's people said, amen.